0: Well, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 4. Let's read together. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other... Either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There is no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, Solomon has been um, proclaiming the vanity of all things, He has shown us that even good things like wisdom have their limitations. Uh, For example, wisdom will not, uh, you will not by wisdom solve all mysteries, nor will wisdom suffice as an ultimate purpose to life under the sun. And yet, this doesn't mean that wisdom is of no use at all, or that it should just be thrown out altogether. Uh, He doesn't hold to either extreme. Uh, Things like wisdom. Other matters like toil, they have limitations. They can be abused, yes, but it doesn't mean that we conclude they are therefore of no use to us. In this passage here, there's a word uh, that gets repeated and into chapter 5 as well, there's a word that gets repeated um, and it's not the word vanity, although vanity does show up a couple times, but it's a different word I'm thinking about. It's the word better. The word better Shows up in the verses we just read in three places, in verse six, nine, and then again down in verse 13. And in these verses, Solomon addresses toil, companionship and worship, or sorry, and wisdom. And he does this in a way that again, cautions against abuse of these things, uh, warns us of limitations of these things, while also commending to us the better way of viewing these matters. And he uses this word better to instruct us about the proper mindset on toil, companionship, and wisdom, to instruct us on the usefulness, the goodness of these things. And so we've already noted a few times he has, he has already started to instruct us of the, the, the goodness of the value there is in toil and in wisdom And he continues on to address those two subjects today, but now he also brings in this matter of companionship as well. Uh, So our outline for today, uh, we're going to look first at the better view of work, verses 4 to 8. Secondly, the better way of companionship, which we see in verses 9 to 12. And then finally, the better way of wisdom, In verses 13 to 16. So let's begin by looking at the better view of work. So in verses 4 to 8, Solomon discusses again this matter of toil. Once again, revealing to us some of the errors that are made with regard to work. And then pointing us to a better approach. So verse 4 says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So Solomon looks out into the world and he sees that so much of man's work is is driven by envy and by a competitiveness with one's neighbor uh, to match them or more likely to outdo them. Uh, the NASB translate this translates this word as rivalry. So it's this competitive spirit based on envy of a neighbor. He says here that all toil and labor come from envy. Uh, this is no doubt meant somewhat hyperbolically. It's very common in Ecclesiastes. Uh, but it's true that so much is driven by envy and competitiveness. It is common to work. Harder and to desire more so as to be the best at something, to be better than those around us, to keep up with or better yet to exceed the Joneses or whoever. Nobody wants to lose. Often just not wanting to lose is sometimes even a a, a more significant driver than even the desire to win. We just don't want to be bested by anybody else. In the work world, our, our society has the term the rat race. The rat race to describe this race to the top. Of course, begs the question, who are we racing in this rat race? Well, we're racing our neighbors. We're racing those all around us. We must outdo other people. We can't let our one neighbor who has less catch up with us. We also want to then catch up to or pass our neighbor who has more. We compete for jobs. We want to be better than somebody else. We need to find that edge that will make us better than the next person. And ultimately he calls this vanity, striving after wind. Ultimately, if this is one's driving motivation in work, eventually one is going to lose. We will strive to be the best, but even once we get there, we don't stay there very long. Uh, the average tenure of the CEO of, a, uh, of, of, of CEOs in the S&P 500, which some of the largest businesses in America, the average tenure of the CEO is 10 years, which means a lot of them are, are, are not even lasting that long. Eventually, someone comes along that's smarter, that's younger, better than us, who will take over. Or if nothing else... We'll one day lose our competitive edge somewhat and someone else will jump in and be victorious. Everybody eventually loses. And Solomon sees this and he declares the vanity of this approach to labor and toil. But he also looks out and sees an opposite error which he takes aim at in verse 5. Verse 5 he says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Uh, This at first glance seems like an odd statement and uh, maybe even seems a little bit out of place. But the fool in this verse, the fool who folds his hands is referring to the lazy person. Uh, Takes his hands away from work and he folds them to take a rest. Here's the opposite of the person in verse 4. Throughout the book of Proverbs... The sluggard or the lazy man is referred to as a fool. And one of the results of the sluggard's approach to life and toil is that he winds up in poverty. He winds up with nothing. He winds up hungry. So there's many places in Proverbs that talk about this. But I want to read from Proverbs 24, starting in verse 30. It says, I passed by the field of a sluggard. It's the lazy person. By the vineyard of a man lacking sense, the fool. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want... Like an armed man. So, again, in Proverbs 24, there, he's passing by the field of the lazy fool, and he sees weeds overgrowing it, the wall is broken down, and he realizes this lesson a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty comes upon you like a robber. Uh, Want like an armed man. So, this laziness, this refusal to get out and do the hard work ends with poverty, ends with hunger. So here in Ecclesiastes 4, in verse 5, again, the fool is this lazy man who checks right out of the rat race, sees this rat race, can't be bothered with it, just stops altogether. And ultimately, he's left with nothing. The only thing to eat, verse 5 says, is himself. Again, An odd, sort of jarring statement to consider. Graphic even. That he eats his own flesh. But the point is well made. Laziness, not toiling at all, is the mark of a fool. And it will lead to poverty and hunger. Nothing to eat. And so there's two extremes here in these first two verses. A constant toiling to outdo and outperform the rest. And then on the other hand, this just checking out and this laziness. And then as we get to verse 6, Solomon now comes to the better way, the better approach to toil. So verse 6 says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Solomon is pointing us here. To a more balanced approach it is better to have one hand on quietness and that word could be translated as rest one hand on rest quietness which implies that the other hand is on toil so you have two hands one on toil one on quietness and rest so yes you work hard most certainly work is good it's valuable we've seen this already but also the importance of having a hand on rest on peace on quietness and this Solomon says is better than two hands that are full of toil and a striving after wind so this is better than going all in with toil and this frenetic pursuit of the rat race then as we come to verses 7 and 8 this rat race approach uh, is illustrated In verse 7, if you look with me, he says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So here is the man who is so engaged uh, with his work, Uh, so active and uh, so hard at this that he doesn't even ever stop to consider why he's doing this, why he's living this way, why he's depriving himself of enjoying the good pleasures, the good things of life, instead to just engage in in toil. He never stops to consider this. Solomon is viewing this um, on the outside looking in at this person. The person he's describing cannot see this, does not stop to think about these things. He doesn't see that he deprives himself of genuine, legitimate, good, lawful enjoyment of life and the good things that God gives to man. He can't see the sadness and really pathetic nature of his life that he has nobody to even share these things with that he's working for, nobody to even leave it to. This pursuit, this selfish pursuit, Solomon says, is vanity and an unhappy or evil business. So work is good, work has its place, but it is better to know quietness and rest as well as work, to know how to receive good gifts from God and enjoy them and not be consumed with one's work. Of course, as Solomon says it is better here, we should not take that as a suggestion or just a personal opinion, like we would say one color is better than another. The man who is enviously engaged in business and the lazy fool are both taking sinful approaches to toil. These verses we're looking at are immensely practical this whole section. This is a good opportunity, time to assess your relationship to your toil. If you are a hard worker, do you also know how to rest? How to take a break? It's not good here if you're just constant and never stop. On this note, I can't help but think of Uh, the Sabbath command of God to work six days and to rest on the seventh. The idea was to cease and to labor, or sorry, to cease labor in order to rest, to worship God, and to think upon His goodness in the context of Israel. They were to remember the redemption that God had worked as He brought them out of Egypt. And without getting into all the arguments, I do think that Sunday is a, a Christian Sabbath. Uh, but man has a tendency to turn that view into a legalistic uh, requirement, something that becomes rather oppressive and not very freeing. But one of the unhelpful reactions to that approach has been to throw it out altogether, this idea of it being a day of, of rest to treat it basically Sunday as any other day, except maybe going to to church uh, for an hour or or perhaps more. But otherwise, we just conduct business as usual, more or less. Jesus, of course, fought against uh, and um, corrected the legalistic approach to the Sabbath day. When he said that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. That is, it's there for man's good to stop, to cease labor, to cease the usual things that we have to do that are even good in their own time, to rest and to worship God. I can't think of a better way to possess a handful of quietness. On the other hand, if your error is in the other direction, if your error is more towards the lazy fool, then take notice in this text that it is only one handful of quietness and rest that Solomon is commending. Uh, Again, we've seen he has... Already stated that toil is a a gift. Uh, To be able to enjoy our toil is a gift from God. Uh, Work is not in the way of life for you. It is part of life that God has given you, uh, as, again, we have seen a number of times. So we have here these two extremes and and opposite poles in this how we approach work and Solomon correcting us with the the better way, the better view of work. Second, Solomon moves on to the better way of companionship. So after this example in verses 7 to 8 of uh, this, this workaholic who has nobody, Solomon now uh, commends companionship to us over isolation when he says in verse 9 that two are better than one. This statement applies to various Friendships, various partnerships, which I think becomes clear as he goes on to give four reasons for this statement that two are better than one. So the first reason he gives is that two are more likely to turn a better profit than one. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Solomon's just being... Very practical, very straightforward here. There's nothing mysterious about this. Productivity can be greatly increased by having someone work with you. This is helpful. This is beneficial in living out our days under the sun. This is an aid to our labor. The second reason given for two being better than one, verse 10, reminds us that friends can help each other out when we're in trouble. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, he's stating what I trust we all understand to be true. (laughs) The importance of having someone there to help when in trouble. I'm sure you can think of many times when friends have come to your rescue, have been there for you to help you out. But I wonder if you've ever seen somebody who has not had anybody there to help when they have fallen down, when they've been in trouble. I remember when we lived in Louisville, we had a neighbor who was an older lady, lived by herself, single lady, and uh, the Andersons were visiting us, and they knock on our door, and this lady came, and she was very, she was very much in distress. And she was supposed to be out of her house, moved, and um, she hired a moving team that was not a moving team. uh, But they were receiving money, and they just put her in an awful mess, uh, destroyed part of the house even, trying to get anyway. She's trying to pay us to come help her uh, because she's got, clearly, we're a last resort. Uh, We did not know this lady well at all. And uh, she had nobody. Nobody. And we're just even remarking after that experience, don't, we didn't take her money, don't worry, but that, that how sad and really tragic it was that this lady, single, older lady, had nobody to help her, winds up giving money to these people who are of no use to her, and, uh, and is just trying to pay a neighbor to even help her get out of the jam. So obviously... A friend there to help is of great advantage. Uh, the third reason, two are better than one, that he gives, verse 11, he says, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Uh, we might think of a husband and wife as we read this, but also I think even, it it's incl- probably more likely in mind here, is uh, travelers, those who are traveling, certainly uh, in the old days having to sleep outside, and therefore having to huddle together to keep warm as night falls. You might also think of even soldiers huddled together in their foxholes, trying to keep warm for the same reason. Uh, in his commentary, Dwayne Garrett uh, says that this is a, he argues that this is a metaphorical uh, metaphor to speak of emotional comfort against the coldness of the, of the world. Uh, a friend, a companion who's there for you, to help you. Uh, Certainly, keeping warm would be one example of such. The fourth reason given that two are better than one is the protection that two can have against an attacker. Verse 12, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So, two men are more likely to resist an attacker than one man on his own. Uh, There is indeed a safety in numbers. A cord of three strands woven or braided together is obviously and clearly much stronger than just a cord that's a single strand. This is a proverb to further illustrate the idea of strength in numbers. Perhaps even indicating, yes, two will resist an attacker more likely, but three is even better. So in all of this, Solomon is reminding us of the value and importance of companionship, of friendship, of community. And one of the obvious implications here is that the person who thinks that they should or that they can go it alone is a fool. For the reasons given above, and we could list off many others. So yes, I I do think that this means that telling otherwise healthy individuals to stay home, to not spend time with other people in real face-to-face interaction, I do think this implies that that is evil, that that is not good. I think the increase in depression that has been very well documented everywhere there's been lockdowns is not surprising. For this very reason, we are created beings and as such are created as social beings. We're not meant to fly solo. If you consider, even before sin had entered the world, God said it is not good for man to be alone. And so God creates Eve to give to Adam and he institutes marriage. As we think about the importance of companionship, partnership, friendship, I don't think we can talk about this without thinking of the church itself. The New Testament teaching is very clear, very straightforward that we need one another. We need our brothers and sisters. First Corinthians 12, a part of that chapter was read earlier In there, Paul talks about the different gifts given to different members of the church. And he he, he says that believers are not allowed to say, I have no need of you. In referring to those who have different gifts from us, other believers, other members of the body. He's comparing the church to members of the body, arms, hands, eyes, and so on. Romans 12, 4 and 5. Similarly, Paul says, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. He's talking about the human body there. Again, the different parts of our body, different members of our body. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This is very strong language to speak of our unity, our oneness with one another. This is so on account of our being united to Christ. If you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sins and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then the Bible says that you're united to Christ when God saves you. You belong to him. He is the vine you are attached to. And because of that, all the blessings of salvation flow to you on account of that union with Christ. And not only are you united united to Him, but also to other believers. We become part of Christ's body. That's the imagery that's used. And so the Christian life above all is not a solo one. If you are trying to make it alone, hear this, see this. Come into fellowship. Find a church where you can be a member. And yes, the gathering of the church to worship is essential Fellowship with one another is essential on the Lord's Day, yes, and in our homes, yards, throughout the week. Two are better than one. Companionship in its many forms is God's gift to man. It is good. Let's continue as Solomon returns now. In verse 13, to the contrast of wisdom and folly, uh, further rele- revealing the better way of wisdom. He has mentioned various uh, good and, and important aspects of wisdom already in Ecclesiastes. He returns to it again here, and he makes the matter very plain in verse 13 when he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who knew, no longer knew how to take advice. It used to be understood uh, that age brought, typically brought wisdom. If you wanted wisdom, you felt you lacked wisdom, then you would look to the ones who've been around a little while, who are older. Certainly in the time of Solomon, that would have been the case. It's been that way for much of history in most cultures. The elderly were therefore held in higher esteem. Today, we have this all very much flipped around and backwards. Uh, youth and young people are the heroes in our world, in our culture, in our stories, in our movies. The new and progressive ideas that arrived yesterday, they are the greatest. The old ways, along with the old people, need to be either either come along with the new ideas or they need to be canceled. And so what Solomon says here probably would have landed maybe a little heavier in his own day and in previous ages than today. What this verse says is that it's better to be poor and young yet wise than to have the power and the wealth of a king and yet be a fool. So very clearly, old age does not necessarily mean automatically that you are wise. Nor does youthfulness necessarily mean you have to be a fool. Notice here that folly is described as not being able to take advice any longer. It is being entrenched and proud. It's losing touch with reality, with your own Inability to see everything with your need for other people, for help. This verse is rather high praise for the goodness of wisdom. How many, I wonder, would choose wisdom over wealth and power? Solomon then goes on to tell the rest of the story. Verse 14, he says, For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom... He had been poor, born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There is no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Uh, these verses are actually a little bit difficult, a little bit of a challenge, although I think the main point of it all is, is quite clear. So I'm not going to go through all the different possible understandings. Um, but give you what I think it's most likely uh, referring to. So, most commentators understand verse 14 to be refer- referring to the poor but wise youth of verse 13, who, in verse 14, were told, went from the poverty of prison to the throne itself, displacing this old and foolish king. Uh, others... I think verse 14 is maybe referring to that old and foolish king. He was born or he was poor and, and in prison but went all the way to the throne, in which case it would be highlighting the, the, the tragedy that he, his wisdom let him ascend so high and then couldn't, uh, but then he, 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 he deserted wisdom. But I think it's better to see this as referring to this poor but wise youth. He's the one who through his wisdom ascended to the throne in this kingdom. And it reveals, again, either way, really, it reveals what wisdom can do for a person. It can take you from the depths to the very heights of society. This envisions, this picture is a a figure not that unlike Joseph. If you think of Joseph's story from Genesis, being sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned, forgotten in prison, eventually making his way up to Pharaoh's right hand. So again, this is high praise for wisdom. Then verse 15 says, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with, and then technically here it says, the second youth who was to stand in his place. So the ESV there is saying that youth and then the king's place. The translators are, are interpreting this for you. They're trying to help help it make sense to you. But you'll also notice they give you footnotes, which I think is good uh, to let you know what's going on here, what the text uh, literally says. That This is talking about the second youth. So I'd suggest that this poor but wise youth in verse 13 is then the one who in verse 14 ascended to the throne over the foolish king. Verse 15 then refers to a second youth who reigns after this poor but wise youth. That is, it's talking about the successor to this poor but wise youth who had arisen to be king. And verse 16 then speaks of the massive crowd of people that this second youth king led as king. And again, in this way, these verses contrast wisdom and folly by showing how far wisdom can carry a person from prison and poverty all the way to the throne, leading a massive people, unending amount of people is what he's saying. It likewise reminds us, highlights for us the folly really the, the, the tragedy of folly. Right that that a man who would ascend to the throne uh, could not remain there, could not take advice. The tragedy of a formerly wise king unable to listen to advisors. So it highlights wisdom reminds us of tragedy of folly but if we start to get too carried away in our exaltation of wisdom we see how great it can be wow we can accomplish great things if we can just make good decisions and be careful and be wise and so on if we would get carried away in our exaltation of wisdom verse 16 continues and it brings us back to a reminder of the limitations of wisdom despite this ascension to the throne there's masses of people in this kingdom He says, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So by the end of his story here, all of these kings have passed from the scene, wise and foolish alike. And at the end, nobody remembers any of them. This is a truth that Solomon has pointed out a few times already. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains. If you want to exalt wisdom to a place of ultimate significance, uh, death and time will render it vanity. And so Solomon is again guarding against two extremes. Uh, Wisdom, on the one hand, even with poverty is better than folly, even with power and wealth. And yet, at the end of the day, years on from now, after death has laid hold of us, nobody will remember us. As he has said earlier, how the wise dies just like the fool. And so once again, we're reminded of the fact that life under the sun is very fleeting and that one day we will all stand before God when we die. And so the greatest accomplishment on earth, the greatest thing that wisdom might help you achieve under the sun, ruling a vast kingdom even, will not permit anyone to escape this reality that we will stand before God and we will give an account. And it is only through faith in Christ Jesus that sinners can be forgiven because of his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Because he's taken the sins of all who look to him in faith, all who trust him and died paying the penalty for those sins, risen from the dead and victory over those sins is the only reason anyone will escape the judgment of God that is to come and to those who believe he grants eternal life no accomplishment in life under the sun changes that and so God has given us many good gifts for this life They are often abused by sinners in different directions. Sometimes they are idolized. They're so valued, they're, they're turned into an idol. The workaholic, perhaps. Other times they're neglected and rejected altogether, like the lazy man who wants really no part of work. Nevertheless, they are still good gifts, though sinners would abuse them. Again, as we've seen, work is good. It was given to man, to Adam, again prior to the fall. And though it's been frustrated since sin has entered into the world, though earth itself has been cursed, though this is part of the curse of sin, work is still good. It is not to be rejected outright as the lazy fool does. And at the same time, it is not ultimate it is rightly balanced with a handful of quietness, companionship. This is another good thing, God has given to man in its many forms. Again, some would reject it outright, seeking to go it more alone. Others still would idolize it, thinking they cannot be. Live a meaningful life unless they are married or whatever it might be. Companionship is abused, but it is still a good gift from God when received rightly. And wisdom, again, wisdom clearly, according to Solomon, greater than the power and wealth of a king, though it likewise has its limits. So let us receive these good gifts from God, not rejecting them or forsaking them, but also not idolizing them, but receiving them as that which they are, God's good gifts to his creatures. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We step back and we marvel at your creation. It is badly marred by sin, but there are still marks of your handiwork all around us. Father, this is your world. You've created it, you've determined how it works and your word declares to us that which is evil and that which is good. Father, I pray that you would just convince us of the truthfulness of your word. Father, I pray that you would grant us ability to work hard at our our jobs, whether we are working primarily in the home, or elsewhere that we might do this in a way that would seek to honor you. Father, we pray that you would help us not to view our labor as something that intrudes upon that which is really good in life, that we would not simply uh, endure the week so as to get to the weekend. Father, I pray that we would not also be so consumed by our work, that we would miss the good things you've given us all around us, our family, our children, food, and so on. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to lay hold of toil in one hand and and quietness in the other. Father, we thank you for giving us other people. We thank you for friendships, spouses, and your church. Father, I I pray that we would rejoice in the blessing of having others around us here to, to help, to be there for us, whatever the issue. I pray that you would Teach us and equip us all the more to help one another when needs arise, to be aware of needs, attentive to needs. Father, give us humility to ask for help when we need it. Father, we do pray that you would make us wise. Father, that we would know your word and view our world around us rightly through the lens of the scriptures. That we would know how to respond and react as we face various situations in our own homes, in our own hearts, in our workplaces, wherever we might be. Father, we pray that you would drive the folly that yet remains in us out. God, we we know that As we have said, as we have sung, we we are forever falling short of your glory. And so we are thankful that none of these commands are are given to us, that we are to, to do them in order to gain eternal life. But rather, eternal life is ours through faith in Christ as a gift of your grace. And as those who are reconciled to you, united to your son, united to one another, part of your church, these laws and commands become freeing for us. They are your good and, and loving gift to us that we might know what pleases you and what is even to our own for our own good. Father. We pray that you would continue to form Christ in us. God, I pray that we would rejoice in your mercies. Pray that you would gladden our hearts and bless the rest of our time in fellowship together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.